Hello, everybody. Welcome. You're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. And on Ocean Currents, we delve into the blue, watery part of our planet and highlight ocean-related topics. We talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, ocean adventurers, ocean archaeologists, and more, all trying to uncover and learn about the mysterious and vital part of our planet. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Cordell Bank is one of four special areas in California waters that are part of the National Marine Sanctuary System. And Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR KWMR listening radius, right off the Marin-Sonoma coast. So Happy New Year, everyone. This is my first show of 2012. I know it's February already, but it's great to be back in the studio here. And I would like to just send a shout-out to some of the listeners that I've heard from via email over the last year. Um, I've been really pleasantly surprised to hear from folks in Kentucky, Ohio, Florida, and New York. And I love hearing from listeners. So feel free to send me an email at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. I love to hear people are listening and what you like and what you want to hear more of. So it's going to be an interesting show today. My guest is going to be calling in a little bit. The rough and treacherous California coastline has a storied past that created what we know today in our communities. Each little town and feature on the coast has a story to tell from land as well as below the surface of the ocean. But looking at a more global level, the stories of our maritime heritage, they encompass the recent century's greatest mass migrations of human populations in history. A world connected that created global commerce and drove the industrialization that changed the face of human cultures everywhere. A planet's ocean that has been exploited to fuel the explosion of the human populations and a changing climate causing all of us to ponder our uncertain future. The forces of change that allow us allowed for this progress still drive our world today, perhaps at an ever-increasing rate. And my guest today, Dr. Jim Delgado, he's the director of NOAA's Maritime Heritage Program. Um, This is a program within the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. He's going to talk a little bit about our our local maritime history here and and put it in perspective of the past of what we have to look forward to um, in the future. How do we learn from these past stories? So stay with us. Tune in to Ocean Currents, and we will be back in just a little bit. Jennifer Stock, you're listening to Ocean Currents. I'm going to give my guest just a few more moments, but I have a couple of announcements to share with you, which I'm really glad to get out of the way at the beginning of the show because I always run out of time at the end. Um, And we'll get back with our interview with Jim in just a few moments. But I want to start just to tell you about an exciting event happening right now here on the West Coast in the next few days is the California King Tides event. And tomorrow, Tuesday and Wednesday, are two of the highest tides of the year. And and interestingly enough, coinciding with a storm moving into the area. And so this event that's happening 
is people are taking out their cameras and going to low-lying areas at the peak of the high tide in the next two days and taking pictures and then sharing these pictures online on a special website. And these pictures are to give us a picture of what the future is going to look like here um, with sea level rise in the next how many so years that they're projecting will have um, moving water coming up. And it's kind of a little peek into the future and an interesting way to look at the vulnerable areas. So I wanted to give you the website to learn more about the event, californiakingtides.org. And if you get online, you can find the local tides here in the West Marin area. They're in the morning. Um, Bolinas Bay, it's at about 1030 a.m. tomorrow. And then the day after that is an hour later. So get online and check those tides. You want to look for the peak high tide event and take out your camera and take a look and see what's uh, what's in store for us in the future. Very interesting. And the pictures will be online and you can submit them online and, and share them. So take a look at that, californiakingtides.org. And I have a book recommendation of the month. While I was preparing for this show, thinking about maritime history, um, a favorite book I've had for years that just has an incredible diversity of things, it's called The Ocean Almanac. The author is Robert Hendrickson. Being a copious compendium of sea creatures, nautical lore, and legend, master mariners, naval disasters, and myriad mysteries of the deep. Really a great book that has so many little short snippets of stories associated with the ocean, and some of them are natural science, some of them are human and history. Really cool book called The Ocean Almanac by Robert Hendrickson. So check it out. And then we also have two events coming up in March, and uh, the annual San Francisco Ocean Film Festival is coming up March 8th through 11th at the Bay Theater, Pier 39, and a wonderful series of different films that will be on, on display over the weekend, and they're always really neat and creative. There's really no other way to view these films because... Um, many of them are, are premiered at this film festival. Some of them are online. But check it out, oceanfilmfest.org. And the films that, are be, that will be at the festival are all online now, so you can take a look at the schedule and see when things are playing and make your plans. The San Francisco Ocean Film Festival, oceanfilmfest.org. And we also are supporting a lecture. The Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary Foundation is working with the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary to put on a local lecture, actually north in Sebastopol, just north of Point Reyes. But March 3rd at the Sebastopol Veterans Hall, 7 to 9 o'clock, it's a free event. Um, Superintendent Dan Howard will talk about the migratory journeys of several animals that come from all around the Pacific, southern hemisphere, northern hemisphere, all down to Cordell Bank to feed here. And then we're also going to have an interesting event. Um, I'm going to be doing a live albatross bolus dissection. And the bolus is the, the stuff that a chick regurgitates before they fledge the nest. And unfortunately, these boluses are plagued with um, evidence of what these birds are feeding on at sea. It's not all natural stuff. And uh, that will be at the end of the lecture. So we're going to try out something interesting there. And it'd be great to see some folks come on out for that. And that's, again, March 3rd. It's a Saturday night, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Sebastopol Veterans Hall. And learn a little bit about this incredible place offshore here and what are some of the stories that it has to tell. And you can learn a little bit more about that on the Cordell Bank website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, if you want to remember that information.
So I'm going to go back to some music for a little bit, and then we'll bring Jim on the line and get to go back to our, our the beginning of what I introduced and talk, talking about some maritime heritage along our coast. Thanks for staying with us. We're on KWMR. This is Ocean Currents. staying with us. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And today we're diving into some maritime history. And today's guest is, he's a world-renowned marine archaeologist with accomplishments too long to list here. He has participated in shipwreck expeditions around the world, including exploration of the Titanic and its rescue ship, the Carpathia, several historic military wrecks, and locally, excavation of ships, and collapsed buildings along the the now-buried waterfront of San Francisco from the Gold Rush era. He's the author of several publications, including a local assessment of shipwrecks and submerged cultural resources in the Gulf of the Farallons and Point Reyes National Seashore. And he has held several chief titles at leading maritime and archaeological organizations around the U.S. And I am very honored to welcome Jim Delgado to Ocean Currents. Jim, you're live on the air. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's such an honor to have you on the air. When I saw you speak a couple months ago, I just was mind blown by the depth of information you have. So thank you for sharing it with our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So you're actually from the West Coast, so you have quite a bit of local knowledge here. Well, I don't know how in-depth it is, but uh, at least it's as deep as... uh a shipwreck at the bottom of the sea. (laughs) So when did it strike you to the importance of the ocean as a shaping feature of our world as we know it today? Well, I have to say it began with growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area. San Francisco being this great port with such a tremendous history, that was inspirational for me as a young person. And archaeology being something that also fascinated me, it wasn't too long before the two merged together. And through that, particularly the study of lost ships and ships that were important in building the economy in the, in the area, particularly after the California Gold Rush, that's what really hooked me and, and demonstrated the importance. I joined the National Park Service at a pretty early age and was participating in digs on the San Francisco waterfront that showed not only the buried ships that were there, but also the importance of the port, lots of cargoes that had been dumped into the bay, That ultimately inspired me not only to write uh, a few books about it, but also to get my doctorate in, specifically in in, in studying the the California Gold Rush and the maritime growth of California in the West. Amazing. You have been, you've kind of coined a term, the maritime cultural landscape, and this is something you've been working on with the National Marine Sanctuary Program. Can you tell us a little bit about this and your current work surrounding it? Maritime cultural landscapes are an idea that came out of Scandinavia more than a few decades ago. A researcher there by the name uh, uh, sorry, a researcher there who uh, had been working quite a bit on these, these, these various wrecks, Christian Alstrom, uh, looked and said, look, there's more than shipwrecks. People lived in these areas. They used these areas, particularly in Viking times. They hauled boats out. They built boats. They had villages and communities. They navigated with this point of land or that. In other words, they knew this area. It was more than just a ship. There's an entire landscape on the water and on the coast 
that these people knew and lived in. And so I'm going to call that a maritime cultural landscape. That idea caught on, and today archaeologists around the world use the maritime cultural landscape as a means by which we really begin to grapple with the bigger issue of how we relate as people to the ocean and how the ocean helps shape us. So with the National Marine Sanctuaries, it's a concept that's just beginning to be used, the idea being that culture is the story of us. It's the story of us and our relationships. It's the story of the environment and us, how we relate to that environment, how that environment relates uh, to us and how it shapes us. So in particular, looking at the maritime cultural landscape in the Marin County and Sonoma Coast area, we'd be looking not only at shipwrecks, we'd be looking at lighthouses, life-saving stations, those spots on the coast where people lived and farmed, hauled their goods down to the water, loaded them on a small schooner, and sent it into San Francisco. We'd be looking at areas in the dog hole ports where schooners used to back up and with a long, high wire would load their lumber to then send it on to San Francisco for, uh, for processing at a mill. We'd be looking at fishing camps. We'd also be looking at fishing grounds where people worked and lived, and even names on the land from the earliest names, be they Palmo or, or Coast Miwok, to the Spanish names, to names that various other groups have given to a spot of land or a piece of the water. What is, going back to history, there's an exercise that I have that I've done with students before, and it's looking with our first relationship with the ocean that we know of. And it actually goes back to 4000 BCE with Egyptians building the first sailing ships. And I'm wondering from your your knowledge, maybe you know something, maybe there's even earlier experience and knowledge of this first contact with the sea. Um, how did they, how did they decide to conquer this in such an incredibly scary environment. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that in terms of the early, early, early contact with the ocean. Well, I think that we related to the ocean from the very beginning, and I don't think that our ancestors were necessarily afraid of the ocean. I think they were respectful of the ocean. If you're a seagoing person, you begin to appreciate the fact that the ocean is not a barrier. It's a means by which we can move. It's a, it's a highway. And there's evidence now, it's very indirect evidence, but it's evidence just the same that people were taking to the water long before the first ships were supposedly built. Human beings were crossing bodies of water to populate Australia, for example, tens of thousands of years ago. We know that thousands upon thousands of years ago, long before the Egyptians were building boats, people were taking to the water and beginning to spread out from Southeast Asia and into what today is Polynesia. As to whether or not those ships were big, fancy vessels, probably not. But if you consider the most successful vessels and the most successful voyagers in all of human history, the Polynesians, those canoes were not huge. Some could be large, but they weren't huge. This is not a massive wooden ship like a gigantic uh, five-masted sailing schooner on the west, on the east coast of Maine, say, in the 1890s but still a sophisticated craft with an innate knowledge by those, those early seafarers of how to work with wind and tides and weather. And in that, those Polynesians covered the biggest body of water in the world and settled it, carrying not only themselves as explorers, but women, children, animals, and plants, some of which were not very resistant to salt, to salt spray, uh, like taro. And so in that, you begin to realize that while we don't have direct archaeological evidence, 
we do have this sense from the way people have spread out in archaeological evidence on land that human beings for a very long time have taken to the water and have built craft of some sort to get there and to get back. In the Mediterranean, there's a cave off the coast of Greece called Franchithi, and it shows that, uh, at least in terms of people having come there and having harvested the obsidian that it had and taking it back to the mainland, people were voyaging there 9,000 years ago. Wow. How about here in California? What is the earliest evidence we have of people living on the coast here in California or discovering it? The earliest evidence of people in California goes back, um, and it gets debated quite a bit, but it goes back several thousand years. Bear in mind that much of California, as we know it, is not California that these people knew. Uh, Increasingly, we're gaining new evidence, not just of the fact that people were coming here early, but that they were following the coast. There's some provocative signs. A new archaeological site that's been excavated in the Channel Islands, for example, has levels that go down well below sea level. And of course that would be the case, because during the last ice age and the last glacial maximum, the coast of California extended much further out. An area, say, off Marin, say, Cordell Bank, the Gulf of the Farallons, that was dry land. 18,000 years ago. And it was only with the end of the Ice Age and the rise of the oceans that that area began to flood. If you look at some of the models for the flooding, say, of San Francisco Bay, you see that it's not more than, say, a few thousand years ago that San Francisco Bay begins to take its, its shape, that this progression of flooding has not only marched up the coast, past the coastal mountains, the Farallons, and made them islands, but it's flooded the Central Valley, it's flooded the bay, it's then retreated a bit, and finally, about 2,000 years ago, things begin to look the way they are. So it would follow that archaeological evidence of the first Californians may not be all the way up and in some of these other sites. It may be underwater now, a couple hundred feet down. And in that, that's another area that we're very interested in looking at, because just as is the case on the East Coast, where they're beginning to find evidence of early people going back that far, I think we're ultimately going to find evidence of early people on the coast of California but, of course, in the water. It must be a really tough place to study just because this is such a energetically active part of the Pacific. And like you, you were saying, a, a couple hundred feet deep, do you mean below the surface of the sand or below the water? I believe, I mean under the surface of the water. And what we're looking at in the case of some of these sites on the East Coast is that the progression of flooding is gradual enough that delicate archaeological remains can survive. Now, it doesn't mean that they survive everywhere because, of course, this is an active coast just as it's active on the East Coast. But what we're seeing elsewhere around the world, in particular off the coast of Europe, is that things do survive inundation. Over half of Europe, that, that is Europe as it was, is now underwater, and archaeologists are finding evidence of survival in those areas as well. So how do we find prehistoric sites underwater off the coast of California? Well, by mapping and carefully doing the kind of survey work that we do, we begin to see what that landscape might have looked like, and then using predictive modeling, that is, where would people have gone? Where might they have settled? Where would they have sighted a a place that they would have returned to again and again? Uh, prehistoric archaeologists do that in California uh, all the time. Now we just need to take those models and start looking at the bottom of the sea in areas that, one, would have been ideal for people to have used and to lived in 10,000 years ago, but also areas that might have also survived ocean current and, uh, of course, the ongoing activities that we continue to do, such as dredging and dumping. For those tuning in, I'm talking with Dr. Jim Delgado. Uh, Jim is the 
uh, director of maritime heritage of the National Marine Sanctuaries, part of NOAA, and is a marine archaeologist. I'm curious, um, are there specific areas in our region here off of Point Reyes, Marin, Sonoma, that are target areas that you really think there might be something there? Well, the coast was, of course, uh, right around Cordell Bank and around the Farallones, and I think that on that coast in particular, at the mouths of rivers, that might be a spot where you might find it. So directly off the Farallones, yeah, for sure. And there's also something as big and as prominent as Cordell Bank, as a huge bluff with all the boulders that are at the base of it. That might have been an ideal spot as well, particularly if people in early years were mammoth hunting. Uh, one of the things we know from sites in Europe is there were areas like Cordell Bank that people were hunting mammoth or mastodons on, and they would hunt these animals and then herd them and drive them off the cliff. Uh, it would be fascinating to go down there, see, do a little excavation at the bottom or the base of Cordell Bank, and start <laughs> finding mammoth or mastodon bones and perhaps a stone point or two. That's the type of thing that we need to start thinking about. It's not that fantastic if you really begin to consider that people were here, they were hunting, they were moving across this landscape, and they definitely were moving by water along the coast. So why not, in one of these places, why not find direct evidence of people having been here? It's amazing. It really gets your imagination stirring. And I know that there's a place on the Sonoma Coast where they believe there's rock that has rubbings where mammoths have rubbed the rock a certain way just from, you know, how a dog kind of rubs themselves against the couch that the mammoths did these the same thing on these rocks. I went to go see these rocks. It was amazing. And my mind just started stirring like, really? Well, absolutely. So who's to say that with that site, which is a well-known and rather exciting site, Who's to say there aren't other rocks like that or other areas that are now underwater? If there's been more ice melting, there's whole sections of the coast that would be underwater now. And so what's the difference? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's dry now, wet now, or dry then, people, animals, they're all going to be interacting there. And that evidence is not going to go away just because it's been submerged. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about some of the wrecks that are in our area. <clears throat> Excuse me. You wrote an extensive report um, some years ago that just shows this coastline dotted with different wrecks. Um, what's one that stands out in your mind as a, an interesting story? Well, there's a number. I mean, first off, let's just start with the fact that of all these wrecks, and there are more than 50 wrecks just off the Marin Coast in the waters of, say, Point Reyes National Seashore, uh, Point Reyes um, of course, has a number of those. Go for the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary, Cordell Bank, uh, I think has the potential for some. And uh, then, of course, in state waters in and around. Those wrecks really reflect a couple things. One, the fact that everybody was lining up to get into the Golden Gate because San Francisco was this great port. And like any spot on the road, just consider the Golden Gate as a bad intersection that you still have to use to get off of the freeway. <laughs> the big ocean's the freeway, but now you've got to thread this narrow little spot to get onto that off-ramp. Where do an awful lot of wrecks happen when you're driving in a car? On the on-ramps and on the off-ramps. Well, that's what the Golden Gate is, and that's why you have these wrecks happening. You just factor in fog, storms, uh, human error, and you begin to see ships starting to pile up. You also have an active coastal trade, and people forget that in the early days and all up through the, the early part of the 20th century, well, practically up to the Depression, people used this coast actively, going up and down, at first in sailing ships and then in steamers that carried folks far and wide. The train was one way to go, but a lot of folks also used steam schooners 
that were actively and heavily involved not only in carrying people, but primarily in the lumber trade. So some of the favorite wrecks, um, well, some of them for me are those work-a-day boats. One that I worked on years ago, an interesting one, was the steam schooner Pomo. And a Pomo, well, had a long career, built for this coastal trade. She ended up wrecking on the beach just off of Drake's Beach and close to the Limantour Spit in uh, I'm sorry, 1913. And the Pomo wouldn't have been famous. Uh, It's really not famous. But for me, what made it important was the fact that this ship was so representative of these schooners that went back and forth. Pomo ended up spreading her bones over two miles of the beach. And every now and then, occasionally those bones emerge from the sand. As well, so too does the steam engine of the Pomo. And depending on how the, the spit migrates and shifts, with each winter. Sometimes you can walk out and practically stand on the engines of the Pomo, and at other times, like we did when we first started working on it in the 1980s, you can dive on it. So Pomo is one of my favorites because it is such a work-a-day regular ship. Another one of my favorites is a little farther south, and it is the wreck of the Tennessee, and it's wrecked at Tennessee Cove down on the Marin Coast and actually in the waters of Golden Gate National Recreation Area. Tennessee was a gold rush steamship that uh, carried passengers between Panama and San Francisco from 1850 to 1853. And in March of 1853, while trying to go in through the Golden Gate, the captain missed uh, in a thick fog and ended up grounding on the rocks and then on pushed the ship further into the tiny little sand beach there at Tennessee Cove. Uh, the ship rocked back and forth. People thought for sure that they would all be killed, but the crew managed to beach her steady, and everybody then with lines and boats got off and uh, left Tennessee to disintegrate in the surf while they camped out into hu- under huge tents made from the ship's sails while folks came overland from San Francisco and uh, took everybody back to Sausalito and then by ship to uh, to the mainland. Or you can take a look at another wreck like the clipper ship Sea Nymph, which was involved in early trade. These clippers were fast, sleek ships. In 1861, the Sea Nymph uh, missed the the coast. (laughs) She was lining up and she crashed ashore, uh, not in San Francisco, but right on 10 Mile Beach in Point Reyes. Grounded and remained there and gradually sanded in and disappeared. An interesting thing, a few weeks back we were going through the early records of the U.S. Coast Survey, and there on the map that they had, where they were charting, 10 Mile Beach, you could actually see the outline of this ship and there in pencil, and then covering it with pen, the Coast Survey had written Sea Nymph. Uh, so we know exactly where, accurately surveyed and measured by this Coast Surveyor, where the Sea Nymph was. Uh, Many, many wrecks like that um, going all the way from the gold rush uh, on to uh, more modern periods. Uh, A wreck, the Oxford in 1852, actually is wrecked at the mouth of Tomales Bay. The captain, having not been here before and trying to come into California during the gold rush, thought that Tomales Bay was San Francisco Bay and that the entrance to Tomales was the Golden Gate. Uh, Boy, was he surprised. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, Folks listening, this is KWMR. You're listening to Ocean Currents. I have guest Dr. Jim Delgado on the air here talking about some maritime heritage on our coast. 
We also had a, a very active whaling station in San Francisco. That really surprises folks um, all the way up to the 70s. And tell me a little bit about the whaling station and how many – was this a, this was a prominent whaling station for the – in terms of the trade of whale or whale uh, – I guess oil is really what they're after, the blubber. Well, whaling is America's first major industry. It's an industry that defined us as the United States going back from colonial times and on through the 19th century. And, of course, I mean, if you think about it, that um, – that industry was important because it was whale oil that lit lamps and illuminated not only houses, but uh, also was responsible for oiling machinery. That whaling oil spawned fleets that sailed out at first on the East Coast, then throughout the Atlantic to the shores of Africa, and thence into the Pacific in the early 19th century. It was whaling that introduced us to Hawaii. It was whaling that carried America into the Arctic, and it was whaling that defined us as, as a great seagoing nation up to the Civil War. The Civil War was a time when whaling began to take a big hit. Not only were Confederate raiders on the high seas burning and destroying American whaling ships, including a number on the Pacific, but we also were beginning to see the rise of a new industry, an industry that had begun in the late 1850s, and that, of course, was the petroleum industry. Ultimately, petroleum would become king, but whaling did persist up until the early 20th century. As a result of the importance of the Pacific, though, after the Civil War, San Francisco became, became the great whaling port of America. No longer would it be New Bedford or Nantucket. No, it would be San Francisco. And San Francisco whalers not only worked in the Pacific, but a number of them went to the Arctic. Ultimately, what happened is that the uh, industry began to die out. Sending large ships out really didn't work anymore. And so shore whaling became a big activity. And shore whaling just meant you had small boats that would go out. You would hunt whales off the coast, bring them down, and... Um, haul the whale carcasses into the beach and, and process them. So one of the last spots where this happened uh, on the California coast is pretty close to San Pablo Bay on San Francisco Bay, and it's the Richmond Whaling Station, which, uh, while it closed down decades ago, uh, remained standing until it burned in the early 90s. And that, uh, that station, which is uh, right at Point San Pablo, uh, is a real, it was a landmark and a real reminder of uh, just what uh, we did as a nation. And uh, interestingly enough, that Richmond Point, or that San Pablo Point whaling station was the last operable shore whaling station in the United States. Really went to the latest, latest time. Was that the Marine Mammal Protection Act uh, that really ended whaling, or just was it the over-harvest? I think that what really did it was, of course, the the... the the laws, everything that had people saying, wait a minute, you can't be doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, as a nation, we have stepped away from whaling. Mm -hmm. But it still happens, um, unfortunately, in some other countries. I think whaling is one of the stories that really is something to learn from. You know, we talk a lot about learning from the past to, you know, pre present and looking at our future in terms of managing our natural resources. And 
wheeling and and seals, we kind of went overboard really quickly and nearly decimated these populations to extinction. Absolutely. And in that that's one of the reasons why we study this, is that there are many resources that uh, were extracted early on in our history. And uh, by better understanding the history of uh, how we extracted resources, sometimes uh, very detrimentally, I think that helps inform us as we look to the future. So thinking about that concept, because I, I think it's a wonderful one where we can look at the past, how do the decision makers of today and the different agencies think how are they how are they presented this information in terms of making relevant decisions today based on the past well i think that for somebody like national marine sanctuaries where we go is we actively study the history and we look at that and with maritime landscapes in particular we look at various aspects of history and we're not just looking at that history and saying hmm that's bad history that's good history we take a very level look at it. We record every aspect of it, and we make sure that that's there for people to, to see and to, to tap into as decisions are made. I think what's real important is that sometimes one person's history is not another person's history. Mm. In that, you will have something, say, as simple as names on a landscape. We oftentimes put names on landscapes to possess them or own them. Certainly early explorers did. That's why you would have somebody like Francis Drake coming to the Marin Coast, nailing up a plate of brass and claiming this entire area of Nova Albion for Queen Elizabeth. That's why you have Spanish explorers coming here and leaving their names on the land and mapping and charting it. And that's why the United States comes along, and we also put our own names on spots, so that the Punta de Cantil Blanco at the entrance to San Francisco Bay will ultimately become Fort Point whereas other older names sometimes do survive. So the Punta de los Tres Reyes becomes Point Reyes. But more often than not, old names disappear. So what we do in reflecting that past, particularly with maritime landscapes, is we record all of them. And they're there and they're all equal. So people can look at them, see them, and say, okay, as names have changed over time, I get why those names have changed. But yet when picking or referring to something, with all of those names, we're not letting one overpower or stamp out another. And that's real important, particularly if those are the original names that the first people who lived here gave them, whether the names the early explorers gave them, or if those are the names that people who live in an area get to know something by and relate to it because it's important to them. In the case of something like studying whaling, I think it's very important that we look in particular at the records. We look at how those populations were accessed, how many whales were being killed, and what we were doing. And with that, I think you begin to get real demonstrable facts that show you just how, when you look at the detailed records, how you can be hunting whales uh, beyond the point of sustainability. Bear in mind that some of this history is very recent. That Richmond Shore Whaling Station opened in 1956, and it lasted until 1971. And what they were doing is going out there every year and harvesting about 175 whales, usually finbacks, humpbacks, and sperm whales, by going off the coast into the migration routes, shooting these whales, and then towing them in, pulling them up on a ramp, and butchering them. We don't do that anymore. But at the time, these guys were doing something that was part of their job. It was something that brought food to the family table. And so while we know differently now, mm -hmm. that shouldn't, we shouldn't then be saying, oh, no, no, that's bad history. 
No, it's history. It's important history. It's something we do need to remember. And that's history that directly relates to those waters off of the Marin Coast, because that's where these guys were headed. Mm-hmm. It's just something that we look at and we say, okay, that's an important part of their history, and this is what they did. But I don't think now, knowing what we know, that we would be going out and doing this in the migratory route, uh, migratory routes for humpbacks. Yeah, I think of the sardine fishery in Monterey as another example of that. And, you know, it was a boom and bust fishery, heavily, heavily harvested, really boomed the area down there, and then it disappeared. And now it's a well-managed fishery, and and they know more about how the fishery works in terms of there's good years for sardines and not so good years, and how do you sustainably harvest the species now? And I think that's another good story that is relevant to how we manage today. Exactly. So one of the things that I think about a lot is some of this history is incredible because it's been, we only know it because it was written down in log books or articles in the paper. And I imagine mining this information is incredibly difficult. Um, I think about the future. And today our our communication is very digital and electronic. And I imagine at some point, how are we going to have this information that we have in our current age of day, how is that going to be preserved in the future? How, is, how are people going to be able to look back on our current day? Well, one thing, I guess, is that we're always thinking that at some level, the Internet, now that it's with us, is going to be with us. And one of the ways that certainly we access that older history now is that so much of it has been digitized and is going on the Internet, from old newspapers to records to photographs. It's amazing each year as I go and log in and start searching through things people have put on the web, just how much of that early history is accessible. So on the premise that the Internet in some way, shape, or form is going to be with us, not only are we taking the earlier records and the research that we're doing and putting it online, but we are also mining the, the Internet for the work that has been done. A fair amount of what uh, we're looking at now and putting together as we do a maritime cultural landscape study off the California coast, is going to be accessible on the Internet. And just log in and and watch as more (laughs) of it comes online. You're pretty confident the Internet will be around for a long time, huh? Well, uh, (laughs) if not the Internet, some version of the Internet. That's true. That's true. I mean, just consider how much it has become part of our lives, how ubiquitous it is. Yeah. It's just interesting. When I've been on ships, they still do paper logs here and there, you know, to mark down the date and time of certain events happening. And I always reflect back on why we still do paper logs on boats. Well, I don't know. I I do love paper. Um, Obviously, I'm a a historian as well as an archaeologist. Paper uh, does last, and I certainly have seen it last even on shipwrecks. So absolutely uh, do love it. But I also understand and appreciate the power of the Internet. Yeah, it's really great for sharing. Tell me a little bit about um, an excavation you did in San Francisco under an area that had been built up. And you went and did an excavation for a, a shipwreck that was from way beyond, way before the area had been developed. And where, where is this exact area? It's downtown San Francisco somewhere. But you were involved with the excavation of this ship? Well, going back to the 1970s, I've been lucky enough to participate in a series of digs with a group of friends who do archaeological work in downtown San Francisco. A great deal of that work is done by Alan Pastron, who has a private firm called Archaeotech. And Alan, for decades, has been the guy you call 
as well as another fellow, Jim Allen, no relation, who also works for another company, William Self Associates. And anytime you do downtown construction in San Francisco under California law and sometimes federal law, you have to go in and make sure you're not going to disturb something that's archaeologically significant. Now, we're not just talking about somebody's rusty old bicycle that they left 100 years ago. More often than not, we're talking about some very early things, early traces of the first people that lived here, sites that are thousands of years old, a burial ground and a habitation site from several thousand years ago that lay beneath the Moscone Center in San Francisco, for example, was, was one of these sites, or a tent building that had been knocked down and buried uh, where miners had lived in San Francisco up to about 1851, next to a prefabricated house that had been shipped out during the gold rush that the excavation revealed, had probably been used not necessarily by a family, but a large group of women who seemed to have a lot of male visitors. Um, there was another place that was excavated, and this is what you're specifically talking about, which was not a ship that had been wrecked, but rather ships that had been pulled in and turned into buildings, because San Francisco during the gold rush had a shortage of houses and warehouses. With all these ships arriving, all these cargoes, you needed a place to store it. And so with more than 500 vessels that lay idle on the waterfront because the crews had run off to the gold fields, it was simple enough to take a ship, pull the masts out, pull it up under the mud flats, and turn it into a floating or sometimes a, mulk, uh, a, a hulk in the mud um, and use it as a warehouse or a hotel or the town jail. So with Alan Pastern, I was able to work on a few digs, but the one most recently was in 2001 where I joined Alan's crew and we helped excavate the ship General Harrison, a ship built in Newburyport, Massachusetts in 1840 which had arrived in San Francisco in February of 1850, and by May of 1850 had been converted into a huge warehouse by Edward and Etting Mickle, two young guys from Baltimore who had settled in Valparaiso, Chile, and from there had come to San Francisco to make their fortune as commission merchants. But that means as ships would arrive, they would step on board, they would buy part of the cargo, and they would offload it into the General Harrison. The General Harrison was not just a warehouse, it was an auction house. And various merchants would come in, and Mickle would hold the cargoes in the ship for a while, because certainly if you had a large number of shovels, shall we say, and ten other ships arrived with shovels, well, the price was not going to be very high. So you would wait until shovels were needed, and there were none other in town, and then Mickle would have an auction and say, what am I bid here for these fine shovels? Sold, and off they'd go. That's the kind of market that San Francisco was, and the General Harrison was an important part of it. But it only lasted for a year because hmm. on May 4, 1851, the entire waterfront burned in one of San Francisco's frequent gold rush fires. And yet the fire went out as the ship burned to the waterline. So what we did with that dig was uncover not only the entire bottom of the hull, but also the cargo, which had been hauled out, half burned, and thrown into the bay as the local Chinese had worked to try to salvage the ship's copper and other metal fittings. Uh, that cargo included well-preserved things uh, like clothing, boots, bags of beans, barley, uh, wine that was still intact, though certainly not drinkable, as well as stout porter ale, uh, building supplies. In short, everything that Mickle had put into that ship we found some trace of, hmm. and that reflected not only its use as a warehouse, but the broad range of where things came from. We were able ultimately to reconstruct a global network of supply that Mickle had relied on, not only to help make his business go, but that type of network was responsible for making San Francisco this port, a port that would long survive the vagaries of the gold rush and a bust-and-boom economy to become the modern city 
uh, that it that it ultimately is. Wow, it's incredible. Is there a place to observe these artifacts? Are they saved or on display? Well, there's a number of places where you can see some of them. Still processing those finds, but just now and just this week, I believe, San Francisco Maritime National Historic Park in downtown San Francisco is opening up a new part of their visitor center, which includes an area where you can see some of the artifacts and things from the buried ships. And that is right at Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, next to uh, Hyde Street Pier, their visitor center uh, is a beautiful spot, and you can walk through and actually see various stages of San Francisco's history, including that section, with lots of pictures of the excavations. Excellent. That's actually an incredible treasure that we have here is, uh, as a national park goes, and a great location. I love going down there. And uh, hope lots of people will go down and just walk the ships, getting a perspective of the bay and the changes over time. It's really exciting. But that's great. Those things are on display and people can see them. What's involved? We have about five minutes left. What's, a, what's involved with preserving artifacts that are found like that in an excavation? Well, everything that comes out of the ground that's been wet, and particular things that come out of the ocean, requires what we call conservation. That means uh, if you just take it home, it's going to fall apart. So what we have to do is we have to treat them. We have to take salt from water and extract it from the artifacts, or it begins to splinter and fall apart. If something's completely waterlogged, we have to drive the water out. But because the wood has changed chemically, that wood will ultimately collapse unless we fill the partially collapsed cells of the wood with something that holds it together. And in that circumstance, we generally use a a water-soluble wax called polyethylene glycol. We're also... uh, cleaning things, sorting them out, and analyzing them in the laboratory, the CSI type of approach to everything we find, because sometimes a charred bag of beans can tell you a great deal. In the case of the General Harrison, the chili beans that we found, well, guess where they came from? Chile itself. (laughs) Appropriately named, I guess. Indeed. (laughs) And in the case of the wine, there were no labels left, but an analysis done by folks in Sonoma, actually, Thank goodness we found wine in California with all those great folks that work in the wine industry. We were able to identify it as a variety of very nice white wine, potentially a Chardonnay, the style of the bottles, and some of the surviving DNA suggested that it came from France. So we'd like to think that perhaps what we had there was a very nice Burgundy-styled <laughs> Chardonnay, perhaps a Merceau or a Montrachet, uh, something nice and buttery to delight the palate of somebody in Gold Rush, San Francisco. Interestingly enough, the, the taste of the times was generally for sweeter wines. Rieslings and what we now call Gewürztraminers were very popular. We saw a lot of that stuff generally in our digs, but usually as empties. So uh, perhaps these cases of this Chardonnay suggested that while a very nice wine and one that we'd like today, well, maybe it wasn't selling that well, and that's why it was still in storage in Mickel's ship. Interesting. Wow. We just have a couple minutes left here, and I'm curious uh, if there's any books that you'd recommend for people to learn more about some of this history of our area, the Gold Rush era, but also the Marin and Sonoma area. Well, there's a number of books. Some of my favorites, and I hope they're still in print, are books written by the late Jack Mason of Point Reyes that documented the history of uh, the Marin Coast and the Marin communities. Jack Mason's book, particularly Point Reyes uh, and, and his book on the Alima Valley. Wonderful, wonderful books. 
I'd be remiss, of course, if I didn't uh, also plug a few of my own. Mm-hmm. A book that's still in print, uh, if you can get it, is Shipwrecks of the Golden Gate that we were able to work on with Steve Haller, now the park historian for Golden Gate National Recreation Area. And there's also a few books that we did, including a really detailed and scholarly one on digging up downtown San Francisco called Gold Rush Port, uh, the maritime archaeology of the San Francisco waterfront that the University of California Press published. And also my favorite book about a shipwreck on the California coast, Tom Layton's book on the voyage of the frolic, uh, opium clipper turned California trader from China that wrecked on the coast near Mendocino. Tom Layton found remains of that wreck in a local Kashaya Pomo camp. These people had salvaged the wreck in 1850, and that began an incredible journey in which ultimately Layton went back to the shipwreck itself and learned a tremendous amount, not only about the vessel, but how through time this ship had influenced many, many people, many, many cultures. So The Voyage of the Frolic is another book I'd recommend. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Jim Delgado, this has just been a very fast uh, interview. There's so much to discover about our past here. Thank you for joining us today on Ocean Currents and sharing some of this history. I think it's something to think about is that these are non-renewable uh, resources. When we think about managing um, our our natural resources, these are not renewable. These stories, and um, I really appreciate you working so hard to keep these things alive to help us forecast for the future. Thank you. Thank you for sharing them. Thank you so much. Well, thanks again, and we're going to sign off here, um, and we'll hopefully talk to you again. Look forward to it. Thanks again. Bye bye. We've just been talking with Dr. Jim Delgado, who's the director of the Maritime Heritage Program of our National Marine Sanctuaries, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and a wealth, a very deep wealth of knowledge of maritime history um, with lots of detail. Jim recommended three books, Shipwrecks of the Golden Gate, Gold Rush Port, Tom Layton, The Voyage of the Frolic, and I bet you the Jack Mason Museum over in Inverness would have the books that were written by the late Jack Mason, Point Reyes and Alima Valley. Um, So we can check those out here locally. So very interesting to think about some of the maritime heritage here on our coast. I'm going to take a quick break, and before we wrap up the show, we'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month. It's part of the West Marin Matters series. And each of my shows that I've done over the last five years, I have them all saved on as a podcast on the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary webpage. You'll be able to click on the KWMR webpage, too, to get an archive of this for a while. But uh, to catch up on shows from the past five years, you can go to Cordell, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. And uh, here are the past shows we've done here on Ocean Currents. You can also subscribe to the podcast there. And next month I'll be back, and I'm, I'm still working on scheduling up some interviews. I'm trying to get somebody to talk about this path of tsunami debris. So I'm really hoping to bring that to us uh, on Ocean Currents next month or in April. So stay tuned for that and keep posted on what's happening. Check out those king tides the next few days. And if you can, upload those pictures, the californiakingtides.org. Thanks for tuning in again to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock, and you've been listening to KWMR. I'm going to sign off, and have a great afternoon.
Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks for helping to protect our ocean.